Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Well, how wonderful. Here we are then with our very first episode on our very first podcast covering the case of Baganza. Do we agree roughly with the description of the podcast? Yeah, try and work in some arguments, shall we? <laughs> we'll keep the arguments for later on. Um, right. Lively debate. Lively debate is the best word. Lively debate. That's it. That's it. We need to change that. I'll have to. I'll have to add that in somewhere to the to the description of this in the right in the written description. This is a not an argument. It is a debate um, about um, various contract law cases, um, old and new. Um, we'll try and bring one out every two weeks. Contrary to the presidential debate in the States, you can't mute us. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. There's no muting. Uh, so everything is real. Um, and, and we'll try not to edit as well. Um, I, have the, I have the beautiful task of introducing the facts um, of the case. Um, and Severin and Maggie, you'll jump in um, when I get it wrong or um, miss things out. Um, the basics of the case are um, we're talking about Mr. Baganza um, in a contract with BP Shipping Limited um, and there was a death in benefit clause in the contract. Um, so you can tell from that already, Mr. Baganza, of course, um, unfortunately died in this case. He went overboard um, and we don't quite know what happened to him. Um, and we'll probably not spend much time on trying to work out what happened to him either. Um, but we know from the facts that Mr. Baganza had money problems. Uh, he'd moved to uh, Toronto in 2008 with his family. Um, and it sounds like there were some various problems that arose with that. He had quite a big job on the vessel that he was on, um, and he the vessel was in the mid-Atlantic. Um, his idea, well, the, the whole point of the exercise was that he was supposed to lower some cooling jackets um, into the engine room, um, which took quite a long time, and it meant that the engines had to be stopped for that period of time. And, of course, if you're going to stop the engines, then you need some good weather. And this whole good weather thing is, is partly what's, what's so important. Mr. Granta was seen last just after midnight, um, and they couldn't find him, so concluded that he had gone missing. The question was whether there had been a suicide or whether this was actually deliberate. Um, Sorry, whether this was an accident or whether it was... Oh, my goodness me, that, that was a... Whoops. Um, and the term of the contract um, was, well, as follows. Um, for the avoidance of doubt, compensation for death, accidental injury or illness shall not be payable if, in the opinion of the company, and that's the important part, in the opinion of the company or its insurers, the death, accidental injury or illness resulted from, amongst other things, the officer's willful act 
default or misconduct, whether at sea or ashore. And if I'm going to jump in now, if you're inviting jumpings in, um, note, notice in that wording there is the absence of reasonable. It doesn't say in the reasonable opinion of the company or its insurers. That, that has turned out to be a, a, a big point. Absolutely, I, I entirely agree. Um, and with that, actually, in, in order to... Well, BP then set up its own inquiry. The main purpose of that inquiry, and that becomes quite important actually, is that they were um, trying to work out whether their own procedures needed to be changed. That was the main purpose of that original inquiry. Um, and later on then, this same inquiry, the result of that inquiry, which was that it was a suicide, um, was used as a basis of deciding that there should be no compensation. That it was more likely to be a suicide. They didn't really know, but on the facts, they decided that it was, you know, likely to be a suicide. And I suppose that doesn't really matter, doesn't it? Because it's worth remembering this is all civil and therefore it, everything would be judged on the balance of probabilities, more, more likely than not, at every decision that you're making. That's good, yeah, yeah. Um, and the argument then was that, uh, and this is where I can hand straight over to Maggie really, um, uh, the argument was that if they're going to use their discretion, um, they have to do so reasonably um, and the question was as to the standard of that and I think Maggie I'll just hand over to you to look at the judgment of um, Lady Hale in this case. Okay, um, Lady Hale did speak for the majority um, and what's interesting I think is the analogy that is being drawn between tests that you would naturally apply in the public sector across into something that is entirely private because remember contract law is an entirely private thing in a sense between two parties. In this case, poor Mr. Brokanza and his employers. But she's using concepts from public law, from the standard applied to public institutions, bodies, making decisions, uh, and she's applying it across. So effectively, there are now what looks to be two hurdles that have to be got over, uh, and they're not very high hurdles. So if I just briefly explain what those hurdles are, you might appreciate how um, easy this ought to be for 99% of the time. So the, the two hurdles, the first one is just to check that the decision maker, who um, we are assuming is not a lawyer, but is exercising a discretionary power, and that's probably quite important to, to look at the wording of this particular clause, and that's what they're doing. The decision maker wasn't a lawyer, but he was exercising a discretionary judgment, if you like, on facts. He is going to be tested against the matters that are reasonably to be taken into account uh, when making that sort of decision and to make sure that they are not taking into account irrelevant things. So it's what's called the four corners. In other words, you look to see what should be relevant 
for that type of question, for that type of decision making, and make sure you're within the perimeter of that. So leaving out of account the irrelevant, but obviously taking into account the relevant. And that's the first hurdle. And it, when you articulate it in that way, it, it ought not be too troublesome, I think. Uh, and then the second hurdle um, is to just uh, double check that the conclusion itself, so now you're looking at not the process so much, but the end result. The end result is not so irrational or perverse, you might say, that no, um, it's not possible for any reasonable person to have come to that uh, conclusion. So that's a very low standard too, because it is not the test of reasonableness, it's the test of perversity or irrational. Uh, looks like it's done on a whim without any factual base at all. And if you get over those two little hurdles, then there's just a final sort of double check. This causational requirement, as it's sometimes referred to, that is just to stand back from that process and that decision and ask yourself, well, had they done it properly? In other words, had they got over these two little hurdles sensibly, would the decision have been any different? Because there's no point in upsetting a decision if the end result would have been the same had you done it properly. So actually Lady Hale is setting uh, by analogy from the public sector, as I've said, but, but a very low threshold. Most people ought to be able to get over those hurdles without any difficulty. Um, so you might sort of see this as um, perhaps making a mountain out of a molehill. Can I? Well, yeah, yeah. So when when Maggie, you say it's a small. These are small hurdles. So yes. you did meant. I don't know whether I would put it. Well, small in the sense of undemanding, unchallenging. It ought not be difficult for any rational person to be able to get over these hurdles. Okay, but they are nevertheless important because so you did the, the, the one thing which is important to remember in this case is so you have mentioned the, uh, you know, that it is applied in, in a public sector. So here there was a lot of discussion, um, you know, when this case was uh, reported as to whether this is too, giving too much discretion uh, to the judges in relation to, as you said, Maggie, the fact that it is a purely private arrangement. So again, um, uh, Lord, uh, Lady, uh, Lady Hale herself said that, you know, when there is a contractual discretion, it is quite common, but whether then the, 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 the courts have the power to effectively rewrite so this is not what they are saying but this is nevertheless um the court interfering within the uh, party's business and whether that is right or not so when you say too small hurdle it almost belittles what they did and that's where i would like to slightly disagree with you it is important that the courts here have the power to ensure that procedurally as well as substantively when a party has discretion uh, to make a unilateral decision which is going to have an impact 
onto the other party when there is a conflict of interest. Here, we mustn't forget that this is an employment contract. Uh, and of course, the decision here uh, with, to decide that it was a suicide meant that the widow of Mr. Braganza was not entitled to the uh, death uh, in, uh, in service benefit. And so therefore, there is a big... Uh, it, it is crucial for Mrs. Braganza that actually here she did, uh, she was successful um, because she, the, the, the Supreme Court said, yes, she's entitled to it. So these small hurdles, they are within the reasonable person. Uh, so I agree with you in the sense that this is something, this is an objective assessment, but this is still nevertheless a big a big thing that the court is doing, the court is checking whether substantively as well as procedurally, when a party has a discretion, that they use that discretion according to the terms of the contract. So in that sense, it is quite an important thing. When you say a small hurdle, it is not incompatible with the manner in which the courts objectively, when they interpret a contract, they will do it objectively. But I don't I don't want to you all listeners to think that we are belittling the, the decision. It is nevertheless an important because it is applying the a public sector uh, notion into a private one. Okay, let me let me try and persuade you a little bit more then, Severin. <clears throat> uh, it is definitely not the court interfering with somebody else's contract. Agreed. And the technique, the technique is a classic one, and is actually found current flavour of of the week, as it were, with most courts. It's approached on the basis of construction. So it's looking at the party's own deal. We're not messing with it. We're not altering it. We are simply saying it was naturally implicit in that deal. Both parties would have assumed uh, without saying, so the language of implied term, it was bloody obvious, if you like, to the parties at the time that any decision maker would have kept themselves to the relevant and ignored the irrelevant and would not have decided on whim or perversity, don't like the colour of your hair or your eyes, for example. Uh, but it's still quite a low threshold. It's still quite a unchallenging hurdle to get over. And if you think about it, simply that's reflecting the fact that it is an implied term. Implied terms, so as a matter of fact. On, on that one. Um, hmm. if, if we're saying it's implied, does, yes. this, does the standard then change? So, <clears throat> Severine, you mentioned in yours that, that you know, it, it makes a big difference here that this is an employment contract. I mean, are we talking about a term implied in law? In other words, that they're going to say for... No, not, no, no, um, no. Lady, Lady Hale's talking about fact. So she, she actually goes out of her way, I think, to say at, at one point, um, this might uh, vary from um, contract to contract. Um, you you might label this particular contract one of these relational ones, but th th all that means is there is a close ongoing relationship, and between employer and employee, there is one of trust and confidence. 
Um, but we have other branches of contract law where there is something similar going on. Uh, and when I, I don't mean to belittle the decision itself, but what I'm saying is the threshold that comes out of the decision is not a demanding one. I'm not saying that the decision is not important, um, but it's not actually making a lot of new law. If you look in the insurance setting, which is the area that I'm probably more interested in than, than employment currently, we've had cases like this before that have found effectively the same thing between insurer and insured. And, and Lady Hale does actually refer and draw strength from those insurance cases. There's Sokima, for example, if you want to look at the case report, which is an insurance one. So um, an insurance lawyer possibly looking at Braganza would say, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal here? Uh, <laughs> this is nothing new under the sun. We have had this for some time. It's just that it is now Supreme Court who have put, you know, the the top seal on this, as it were, and therefore it's going to be heavily influential. I don't belittle that at all. But in terms of new law, not a big deal. In terms of requirement and onerous nature burdens on, on a, a contracting party, not a big deal. You just have to be careful that your process looks sensible, rational. You are sifting the relevant from the irrelevant. And then I don't think you've got much of a problem in real life. So are we far apart? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to clarify when you said, you know, so I, we are in complete agreement. The, the, the standard indeed, so the Sokima case that you mentioned. So, yes, I think it's important that now the Supreme Court has expressly um, uh, followed uh, the Sakima case, which indeed uh, was quite a few years ago already. So I agree with you. I just wanted to clarify that we were not, uh, because indeed the standard objective, you are absolutely right, it is nothing that we do not hear already the courts doing on the contractual interpretation. They do not want to rewrite. They are not telling the parties if there is anything missing that, you know, etc., etc. But uh, here, the fact that it is an implied term, that therefore, substantively and procedurally, it is nice for the other party who is being subjected to the contractual discretion, that therefore, there is just another layer to make sure that uh, the court can have the power to just ensure that the other party has followed the contract term. And if they, if they haven't, then there is a possibility for that uh, to uh, for the decision to be uh, taken over, as was the case here. So yes, in it's not um, it it has not created new law in as such because it is already applied. In a way, it makes the law more consistent. And by the fact that the uh, Supreme Court has given the seal of approval to the Sokima case. I think is incredibly important, but nevertheless, the power the, the, the power of the court to interfere can be seen uh, in the party's business, can be seen as controversial by some, but it's not. Well, you see, that's, that's the point of dispute between us, I think. I, I don't see this as interference at all. 
this is merely making clear, explicit, what is implicitly part of the deal. And that's the whole thing with implied terms as a matter of fact. We're, we're not writing stuff into the contract. We are saying with a magnifying glass, if you look very carefully, it is already there. But I'm really not sure. I mean, this reminds me very much of the of the old fashioned um, that we now agree isn't there anymore basis for frustration that it was just simply an implied term um, that the parties obviously had thought. I don't think the parties really put their mind to this at all. And actually, if we look at BP, they probably thought, well, actually, we want a term in there that we can decide whatever we want on the bait. That's why we say in our opinion. Um, and actually, we want to be able to make the decision based on uh, essentially our financial interests. And I'm, I get the feeling Mr. Baganza didn't put his mind to it at all. They might have thought that whoever was drafting it might have thought they'd had secured an absolute right by omitting that word reasonable, which I highlighted when when you were um, introducing it, Tim. So th that might have meant something to them at the time. Yes, they might have thought. But um, I suppose Lady Hale and the majority and, uh, and probably Lord Newberger, Newberger as well would, would agree. Um, you know, you can't dress up a discretionary power through clever drafting. It, it is a matter of substance, not form. So it's what the thing is in reality rather than, you know, smart, expensive lawyers all, all over this thinking that they've achieved an absolute right. If its nature is a discretionary power or um, fact-finding position, then, you know, you can't get out of it. Uh, and I still don't think that's rewriting a deal. That, that, we've got lots of bits of law that on that basis rewrite deals. Okay, so um, I, I, <coughs> I agree with, so Tim, it's really interesting, you know, that you are saying that is precisely preventing the party from acting purely for their self-interest. Because by approving the, the Sakima case, it is clear that whatever contractual discretion, and then we can talk about it, we can talk about later, what amounts to a contractual discretion because the impact of this case has been severely diminished by the Mid-Essex case defining contra contractual discretion quite narrowly. Um, so when a party has a contractual discretion applying the Sakima case, they cannot do so, as Maggie said earlier, irrationally, capriciously. Um, and so therefore that is where indeed, Maggie, I agree with you, the implied term uh, is important that when they say they're going to do something in the contract on certain conditions, they need to make sure that indeed they are doing so. So the self-interest here is taken away. They cannot just on a whim, as you said, Maggie, decide that actually in this case, we don't think that death in service benefits should be uh, sh should be payable because, as Maggie said, we don't like the colour of your eyes. So, indeed, here it is not a whim, and therefore I would say the self-interest here, they cannot do something solely because they feel like it. It has to have a basis in the contract, and that's where I agree with Maggie that the court do not interfere with a party's business because the implied terms has to be uh, uh, necessary and following uh, the, the, the usual manner in which the courts imply a term in fact.
Another interesting point when you're talking about trying to avoid this effectively um, <clears throat> would be to sort of look at an express term, as I think you're you're suggesting, that tries to get around uh, the end result of Braganza. And um, that's going to engage, certainly for a consumer, the Consumer Rights Act, isn't it? So something uh, that is dressed up to, to uh, appear to be an absolute right with no possibility of challenge that that's going to be a problem if you're dealing with a consumer what's interesting i think is the unfair contract terms act so between businesses it's not very happily crafted is it if you look at the unfair contract terms act it's not naturally going to fit with this very easily um you know have a look at sections three and 13 for example and kind of like say well does that really work here i don't think those provisions were really drafted with this sort of thing in mind at all so perhaps we need to look more broadly at the 1977 act and ask ourselves does that need an overhaul if if people are really going to try and uh, evade this uh, by clever drafting, if you like. But but as I said at the beginning, I, I doubt they will, because in practice, these hurdles are not difficult to overcome. So why make a problem for yourself by trying to craft an express term that may not work anyway, that public policy and or some statute says you can't do it? Uh, it, it you know it, it's it's making more difficulty for yourself just just try and meet the natural low hurdles and you haven't got a problem well i wasn't thinking of the impact of this case in consumer case actually because in a way the so i go back to the party's interference you know um even though we agree that you know it's not so much interfering it's applying the common sense interpretation etc etc but still there are some businesses which find that the, the the fact that their contracts are looked at in so many details by the court is just an interference to uh, freedom of contract, etc., etc., and therefore it gives discretion. It's bad for certainty. But the uh, in here I was talking about uh, because one of the things that the case does is that it adds good faith to the fact that uh, to the Sokima, um, uh yeah, but it doesn't, though, does it? Well, I know. In 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 in, in practice, in practice, you know that. that uh, I, we don't I, want, I, want any of no, no, that ever in my life. No, no, no. We, I, I don't. I don't want to go back into a, a good faith debate. <laughs> but the fact that it does add good faith, you know, a no, lot it of doesn't. It, no, it doesn't. Okay, let's, <laughs> let, 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 let's, let's not, you know, uh, it, it does, it does say... We, we, we should add in here that we will, will have a podcast on Good Faith at some point. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I don't... I was mentioning it because it does, whether you like it or not, Maggie, it does say Good Faith in, in, in the judgment. But what I, uh, the, the, I, I had more in mind whether that case can be used... Um, in commercial between you know between two commercial parties, uh, and uh, by the fact that in the Midesex case the Court of Appeal said uh, a pure discretion there is a distinction between a pure contractual discretion and um, uh, 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 sorry a contractual discretion and a pure contractual right. Um, 
and there is no interference on the court uh, or there is no play of good faith on exercising a pure contractual right, m many, many cases uh, have since then decided that, for example, uh, a right to terminate a contract is a pure contractual right. Therefore, there well, is... Well, that's, that's an absolute right. And, and, the law, and the law does not mess with that, does it? So... Fine. Yeah. That's why I'm. Uh, what I was saying earlier is that the discussion as to whether this case is too much interference for the parties is severely limited in practice by the distinction between a pure contractual right. So a right to terminate the contract on certain condition that is a pure contractual right, and therefore a party will who has that pure contractual right will have that pure contractual right regardless of what the courts say. So that would be the main point of probable practical argument in following cases. Is this an absolute right, an exercise of an absolute right, in which case I may do it on whim. I may do it for perverse reasons. I don't like the colour of your hair sort of reasons. Or is it a discretionary or fact-finding decision? Well, the courts have made, have made clear that a pure contractual right is not interfered with uh, the Brangadza type implied term. Yeah. So what we haven't covered yet is, of course, Lord Newberger's approach to this. And that does lead me to one of my questions, which maybe we can just hold in the background for the moment, is, and we were skirting around this, I think, earlier on, was it, the fact that it was Mr. Boganza here, or Mrs. Boganza, actually, who, who, whose probably livelihood depended on this case, whether the answer would have been any different if this had been a purely commercial party. Let's, let's start with Severine. Do you want to take Lord Newberger's approach? to the case and then we'll and then we'll have a look at that yeah i i, I find lord newberger who dissents uh nevertheless interesting because so on on if you look at the length of the uh, decision lord newberger's dissent you know takes about <coughs> half uh of the case compared to uh, the majority and I think he really, really dissects the contract. He goes out of his way uh, to show, uh, indeed, uh, whether the, 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 the decision was uh, right or not. But nevertheless, I think he has a lot of sympathy for uh, the majority. And so I think that's why he goes into almost overdrive in, you know, making clear that he disagrees. But nevertheless, at several points, uh, he does... Um, I think agrees. They, so one of the points that he agrees with uh, Lady Hell is the standard, so the, the, the scrutiny on both uh, what Maggie described earlier as, you know, and what I described as procedurally and substantively. That's the interesting thing, though, isn't it, Severin? He actually agrees with the majority on the legal test. Yeah. So actually, you could say this is unanimous in terms of the test. His problem is um, Lady Hale perhaps struggling to find that the decision maker has tiptoed beyond the four corners. And he, he would say, actually, they did keep within the four corners. This isn't what a court would have decided. This is what that person in that position um, ought to be having in mind when making his own decision. And we can't really challenge that on the facts. Um, I, I probably would agree with you on that because indeed he just, you know, it's just he spends, you know, at, between paragraph 
107 and 127, he does go through every single point that the uh, report has done in order for him to say that it was not reasonable. And and so I think he, I probably would agree that he's got... So that's why I find his judgment so interesting because he goes out of his way to say how he disagrees, but in effect, on the legal bit, you're right, they are uh, uh, together. But I think, therefore, he dissects the, 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 the process uh, and the manner and, and what was taken into consideration. He does... Uh, go a lot into saying that you know certain things were not taken into consideration in order to decide whether the uh, suicide was reasonable or not and so again that is interesting in itself um, so yes that uh, I, I find looking at the dissenting judgment here um, that he re almost he reluctantly dissents or he finds so many arguments but yes on the legal bit they agree and so that's why um, for you guys, for students all over, uh, interesting to read the dissenting judgment as much as the majority. But I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Lord Newberger, of course, but, you you know, a cynic might look at that and say, well, that's a, that's a very easy dissent. If, if you know that the outcome is going to be what in your heart, morally, you might want, um, you know, you can make all the legal points that you want, uh, but from a, a position of comfort, knowing actually it's it's not going to alter things. Wow, I don't know. <laughs> Ooh, that was a... <laughs> Ooh. Lord Newberger, he has retired. <laughs> well, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but, you know, if you know that you are the only one who takes a different view, there is a certain comfort, or I would say a freedom in articulating your your view and he goes out of his way as you say you know you've got to be he says you've got to have a very cold stony heart not to feel for mrs braganza and he certainly did but he's is he's, he's relieved of that ongoing grief if you like knowing that actually he's in the minority what he says won't have affected mrs braganza you know i'm not a judge but i could see that you know you could sleep at night um with, with that position because you you've made your legal position clear and there's a sort of purity and beauty in that is there not as as we're lawyers we like to be right all the time so you know he's he's nailing it down he's right in his view in law and actually what he says is very powerful he may well be be right if you like if there is a a right single right answer but he has the comfort of knowing I have not actually made any awful end result that I might be wrong about for this human being, Mrs. Braganza. But, you know, judges are not supposed to, are they, be influenced by the individual circumstances of the parties because um, that way leads madness, doesn't it? You know, you've got the Supreme Court making uh, binding precedent, binding on everyone in, in England and Wales and all of the courts below. You know, you can't do it on that basis. Uh, but, you know, they're human beings. Judges are human beings. They can see the anguish and the difficulty of that family. But somehow, I don't know how they do it, somehow that has to not feed through into the decision-making process. 
And I suppose some people, if I'm being playing devil's advocate, would could look at the judgment of Lady Hale and, and say, actually, that looks like reasoning backwards. That That is the end result she's trying to get for Mrs. Braganza. How legally do we fashion that? No, no that's... That's a contentious thing to say. So I'm I'm not suggesting it that I believe that. But you know, someone reading it might might see it in those terms. Judges are not beyond criticism, like MPs are not beyond criticism. So there's some interesting things that we can look at whenever we look at any judgment to see actually what's going on here. Is it a pure science, as it were? Well, of course it's not. Law is not a pure science. And it's bound to be coloured by the human perspective. And how do we, you know, judges are expert in their experience, expert in their knowledge, but at the bottom, they are still human beings. Um, you know, how much of that feeds through into the decision? It's it's very difficult. It's impossible to, to unpack, isn't it? So, I, so the point, I, the only point I'm making, I'm not attacking Lord Newberger, the only point I'm making is, I could see myself, if I was in the minority, um, there is a comfort. You're totally free in the way in which you are um, giving your judgment, you're doing your analysis, but you know actually there is a freedom in that. You, you know it's not going to have a practical effect on Mrs. Braganza. So I imagine that is some relief to him as a human being, and he is a human being. That's all I'm saying. And I'm wondering, actually, on that, I mean, you say that we can't take that into account, but I'm, I'm not, to a certain extent, I think we can, because, I mean, the power imbalance between Mr. Baganza and, and BP is, is quite obvious, as it would be, for example, with a local authority applying um, measures and... and yes, and but Tim, that, that is a power imbalance in terms of the decision-making process. Uh, and that for sure must mean, you know, to come back to Severin's um, argument at the beginning, that must mean that there is some restrictions on that decision-making process because, as you say rightly, there is this incredible imbalance. Who has all the information? The employer. Who has none of the information? Mrs. Braganza. Um, that must mean, uh, and that that strengthens the the test, as it were, or the need for the test. But but I still say, you know, it's a reasonably undemanding test, just to make sure that you've taken into account relevant matter and ignored irrelevant matter, and it's not completely off the wall, irrational whim. Could could there be an argument then that actually Im implying a term in in law then? to, for example, employment contracts that the standard should actually be higher. Have we missed a standard? Are we at the wrong level here? I suppose they could have done that. They could have taken the view that this is employer-employee um, and, you know, like, like they've done in the past with, um, for example, landlord and tenant, um, you know, we will uh, impose one as a matter of law. But, but as I said at the beginning, I, I think it's interesting that the judicial technique being imposed here is the, the classic one at the moment, which is kind of like top of the shopping list for most courts, is to look at this as a matter of construction, 
in terms of working out what the bargain was of the particular parties. That seems to be, you know, sort of the, the classic high point of, of that at the moment, R rather a sort of Victorian approach in a sense, that this is the bargain of the parties. This is the bargain of the parties. What does it actually mean? Yes, in Absolutely. the context, in, in the context of that bargaining power. Yes, yes. And, and, and I guess that will apply across into other branches of contract, which are not employer-employee. So the classic one of in insurance, for example, you know, Severine, you were talking about two commercial entities that would be, you know, very common in the insurance setting. And yet there is still this gulf of uh, expertise, gulf of information, gulf between them in terms of power and capability. N nevertheless, they're still two commercial entities. So, you know, commercial entities are, are uh, an immense spectrum, aren't they? Yes. From, from the little guy who's probably not much different from Mr. McGranza in a commercial setting to an, an enormous PLC that is perhaps as strong, if not stronger than some insurers. But I think regardless of whether we are in a, a, a B2B contract or whether we are, you know, so between two business or whether we are between a consumer and a business, I think it's, it is reassuring that the same standard is going to apply, that if you have a contractual discretion, um, which is going to have an impact on the other party, uh, you can the 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 protection is that you can you have to take into consideration uh the circumstances in which you have the right to exercise that and it cannot be on a pure whim so if you consider this to be a low standard i would say this is uh, uh, okay uh, but it's reassuring that regardless of whether you are a multinational a consumer or a, a sort yeah. trader yeah you know i agree with you there's a there's a purity in it uh, and certainly as you were saying a few minutes ago there is the uh, ideal or objective of certainty and predictability there is a neatness in it um, and it's a reasonably manageable, understandable kind of test anyway. So, you know, I can't see that there is any real problem with it. it, it, it there is a beauty to it, I think. So what do we think? Correctly decided, then, is the, is the verdict? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, whether you're minority, Lord Newberger, or whether you're majority, Lady Hale, I think they're both right. Is it possible to say that? That's a wonderful way to, to end. Everybody is right and everyone gets a medal. Well, Love we it. all want to be right as many times as we can, don't we? I don't think it's just lawyers, but I think we are peculiar in that sense. I think we should add that to the purpose of the podcast. Our main <laughs> aim is to be right. Yeah. Um, and with that, I think we can we can uh, wrap up for today. Thank you very much to Severine, Maggie, uh, for joining uh, me here. And um, we'll have another topic in two weeks. Thank you very much for listening. And Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it a lot. Bye. Bye.